that's an inane thing to say because it's clearly not binary because it requires such psychological depth. Right. It's an ongoing process. I mean, there are people who are good at this and there are people who are not good at this. And there's people who work hard at this. and There's people who don't work hard at this. Mm. But to suggest that it's a binary, I do it or I don't do it, hmm. is, a, is an idiotic thing to say. Like, it's a, that's, so, a life, that's a life journey, man. That was my Chavruta and nemesis, Rabbi Joel Levy. And I'm Leon Wiener-Dow, director of the Beit Midrash at Kolot, rabbi, teacher, author, and now, as I speak these very words, creator and host of Padrash. Welcome to our first episode. Let's begin with the text, which is what all Jewish conversations do. Our text for the day is from the podcast Heavyweight, one of my very favorite podcasts, and truth be told, the one that got me thinking about Padrash. In Heavyweight, host Jonathan Goldstein takes someone back to the moment that everything changed, and they try to rework it or fix it. If it sounds like the process of tshuva to you, you're in good company. She'd just come home from school when Isabel called her into the kitchen, sat her down at the table, and presented her with an ultimatum. She said, you have to get your grades up. You have to work harder at school. Um, And so... In order for me to be able to play basketball the following year, which would have been 11th grade, I had to have an average of a B in every class. But I was really bad at math and chemistry, and and I didn't make it. I wasn't allowed to play basketball. This episode is called Christina, and you'd be wise to listen to it in its entirety. You'll find the link in the episode notes and on our website. Christina was raised by a single mother who suffered from mental illness, and eventually, social services sent young Christina to the home of her foster mother, Isabel. She took something from me that, I, that I've not been able to get back. What, what is that thing? Yeah, and I don't even know. I don't, I don't, when I say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. Um, but it feels like that passion for something it dashed this huge dream that I had for my life. Here Christina is, years down the line, struggling to contain the complexity and the pain of that moment. In her own narrative, despite the mountains of grief and pain that littered her life until then, this was the pivotal moment, and she wants resolution. What do you want? I think, yeah, I think I want to know like why she made my life so difficult if it was just to break me down if she had some kind of thing against me and what do you want to hear her say i guess i want to just hear her say that she just genuinely wanted me to have better grades but i know that that's just such bs for whatever reason, I've let go of a lot of things that have happened. But for whatever reason, this one thing, mm-hmm. the basketball thing, not letting me play basketball, I'm having such a hard time letting go of that. So she, her husband Levi, and Jonathan Goldstein travel to rural Canada to the old age home where 95-year-old Isabel lives. But the woman she meets while older still has a roughness of demeanor that's painful to hear, even for me as a listener. I can't imagine what it must be like for Christina. Do you remember, I think it was in 
10th grade and I had been playing basketball and you told me that I had to get my grades up or I couldn't play basketball anymore. Do you remember that? No. Okay, so I didn't get my grades up and I had to quit the team. I don't remember that at all. You don't? No. I still... It was it was devastating for me. Well, why didn't you get your grade up then? Knowing this now, I ask Isabel, would you have done things differently? Oh, I wished I had known more about it at the time, but I mean, I still have no regrets about it. But Christina discovers more than Isabel's remarkably well-preserved gruffness. It turns out that Isabel's biography and hers are startlingly similar. And when Isabel tearfully shares her own tragic upbringing... Somehow, everything begins to make excruciatingly painful sense. I lost my mother when I was five, and my father eventually had a nervous breakdown, so I knew what it was like to live with a mentally challenged person. What was it like? Terrible. It was horrible. You didn't know if someone was going to kill you today or tomorrow or what the heck was going to happen. That's not an exaggeration? You really worried for No, it's for not your... an exaggeration. I remember taking my little brother and sister outside and trying to hide them. He was left with five little children. Yeah. And he was terrified that they were going to take the kids away from him. I used to sit by his bed and hold his hand, and one day he said to me, Isabel, why do you keep holding my hand? And in, in my own way, I was trying to let him know that we all loved him. <laughs> resolution. Does Christina attain resolution? Does she get what she wanted? <laughs> well, so how did how did you feel that about that? Um, it was just really intense, and there's a lot of things that she said that were that were very hurtful to me. It's like she affected me tonight, but not in the way that she used to. I didn't get, I didn't get the fuzzy teddy bear cuddly thing. And that's okay that I didn't get that. But what I got was her and, and it wasn't everything I needed. But I feel like that's how she shows love and it's not with hugs and it's not with I love you's and it's not with praise necessarily either it's in a way that I understand now whereas before I just felt like she just didn't even like me but now I can see that she loves me in her way and in the best way that she knows how Our first season is devoted to the idea of tshuva, or repentance. And lest you think that I'm going to try to be positive or hopeful and tell you that the new you is just around the corner waiting to be created, I'm going to put my cards on the table from the get-go. We may well go through this whole damn process of introspection and work, hard work, at self-improvement and self-transformation, and come out the other end with the sense that things are highly unresolved that the resolution and clean start we so longed for are nowhere to be found. What do we do then? Today's episode, Moving Along, Muckily. 
Rabbi Sharon Brous, uh, it is a pleasure to have you on Podrash. Rabbi Sharon Brous is, in addition to the notable fact that she's, uh, I think, my 18th cousin, fourth time is removed. Uh, <laughs> she is a graduate of Columbia University and was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary and she is the rabbi of Ikar, which is a dynamite and dynamic synagogue in Los Angeles. Rabbi Brous has a well-viewed TED Talk called Reclaiming Religion, which is worth checking out. And she is one of the most thoughtful and dynamic and soulful and powerful voices. Uh, and it is a pleasure to have you, Sharon, uh, with us on Padrash. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be with you. I wanted to hear Sharon from you. What was your what were your reactions when you when you listened to it and when you heard it? What what was what was going on for you personally? Where did it meet you? First, I'm just so struck by the quest to identify the moment that changed everything, right? When we look back at our lives and can think of the one word of encouragement or discouragement that ended up kind of setting us on a path that leads us to become who we are in the world. And I, I love that idea. And I think it's a really powerful idea, particularly um, connected to Yamim Noraim in this deep time of reflection, who am I and how did I become who I am? And in the kind of sliding doors, you know, version of my life, who could I have been had that thing not happened? And then to take the step of actually going back uh, to, to encounter the person or people who ended up standing with you at that intersection and pushing you one way or the other, I think is a very powerful tool of, of self-reflection and also of healing. So I'm, I'm very compelled by the idea, and especially because it's, not, it's a small story. And what, I, what I've discovered in my rabbinate is that as much as I'm a kind of front section of the newspaper person, <laughs> that it's really the small stories that end up transforming us and end up making us into the people that we are. So I'm very, I'm really riveted by the idea that someone could pinpoint it was something that that someone said to me when I was in tenth grade right. that ended up affecting the course of my life. So that we, and then really investigating what that could mean, it kind of brings an awareness or an attention to the to the very small details of our daily encounters that could be life-shaping and even transformative. I'm really glad that that's the first thing out of your mouth because Heavyweight was the inspiration for this entire podcast. Because what happened is, is that I was an avid listener to Heavyweight and I thought, um, exactly that idea that Jonathan Goldstein does there of, of identifying to the moment that changed everything and then going back to there. My immediate thought is that's all about chuva. It's all about that kind of reflective process of saying, what were these critical moments and do they sit well with me? And if they don't sit well with me, then I need to revisit them and figure out what I'm going to do with them. And it comes up in the episode, Christina, when, when she talks about she's just before she's going to see her adopted mother, when she kind of shares, I think she's actually crying at the time, when she shares with Jonathan how it's almost embarrassing for her that she's still carrying this moment around. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, what's beautiful and powerful about what you're saying is that I think that most of us, maybe all of us, have these kind of very, very small moments, mm -hmm. which are, are from the outside, they look really small, but for us, they're just enormous. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that you're right, that the big task for us 
as individuals is to go back to the, to identify those moments and then to go and then to bravely revisit them and to figure out if it's a moment for me, as it was for Christina, where, where she kind of thinks from there on out, things just went south. Then we need to somehow figure out what it is to revisit that and what we need to do either in terms of our own inner processes or actually in relationship with someone else to take that moment and turn it into something else because it has other potentialities which weren't realized And I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, for the sake of healing, for Christina's Mm -hmm. own healing, and for the opportunity for Christina to allow Isabel to have this transformation, which, you know, we can talk about whether or not that actually occurs. But I think it's also important because sometimes those small moments end up transforming us for the good. So several years ago, I was really trying to understand what happened to Moshe that one day when he went out and he saw this act of cruelty that an Egyptian was uh, w- was beating an Israelite man. So he must have seen it thousands of times, mm-hmm. right? He's living mm-hmm. in, a, in a slave society. But what happened that day that when he saw it, it became the thing that changed him forever. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, what the podcast is doing is, It's saying those small moments actually matter. Sometimes they cause us tremendous harm. And then we have to go back and revisit them to figure out where the healing can come from. And sometimes they actually motivate us. They wake us up. They allow us to see and experience the world differently. And as Arundhati Roy says, once you see it, you can't unsee it. I think Mm -hmm. that's what happened to many Americans and even many people around the world with the with the video of the murder of George Floyd this spring. Right. People saw it and they it, it woke something up in them and you they people could have heard for decades about racial terror, racial injustice, about Jim Crow, mass incarceration, about just finding new ways to to torture and terrorize and criminalize the black population in this country. But when they saw the video, something different happened. And that moment, which is not really an extraordinary moment, because people will tell you those kinds of acts of criminality happen all the time in this country. But somehow seeing the video woke something up in white America. And so in some ways, when you honor the proposition that some small moment has the power to change you, then we ask the question of, so so how can we use small moments now to actually bring about the kind of awareness, spiritual wakefulness, and social change that actually needs to happen? So it's both in order to be able to do the repair and the healing that's caused by the the damage of past events, but also in order to to contemplate how those moments of wakefulness can create in us a different kind of moral imperative, moral responsibility. So one of the things that I hear you emphasizing is that where there there's a way in which this process when we go back to this small moment it's not just between me and myself in other words there's someone else involved and and in a certain sense that revisiting that moment is an invitation and we see it of course in the story of Christina and Isabel but it's a kind of invitation or maybe even imperative to involve someone else in that process so it's not it's not solipsistic right it's where we're kind of invited and turned outward towards the world uh, even in in a part in a process that seems fundamentally internal or inwardly turned. Well, just I just want to say that particularly in this moment, 
when we are living in an era that's defined by multiple crises affecting us all at once, it's really important to remember that these little stories are actually, these small epiphanies are the moment, these are the things that actually define who we are. And so, um, so we might think pandemic, poverty, disease, global climate crisis, that these, are, that these are the things that will end up shaping us. But in fact, it's really much smaller. And so I think that the podcast does draw attention to the power of the small story in transforming the human experience. Beautiful. So take me the next step along uh, the way of your journey you, once you heard the podcast and you had your initial thoughts and feelings and reactions to it. When you started to, uh, I'll, I'll say, frame it Jewishly or started to think about it or process it through the Jewish concepts which animate and lead you through um, the world, what, what were the texts or, or, the, or the thoughts that came to mind? So first, I love the premise of this conversation because, of course, we look at the whole, at a certain point, you look at the whole world through the lens of Jewish text and Jewish ideas and Jewish conversations. And there, and so as I was listening to it, and this would have happened regardless of this conversation afterwards, I immediately started to think about the laws of tochecha, about the laws of rebuke, Mm -hmm. and the ways in which Christina was, of course, without knowing it, engaging a kind of ancient wisdom in bringing this um, this pain point to her foster mother or adoptive mother. And so I thought first about the, the Pasuk from Leviticus, the verse from Leviticus, um, and the way that the way that Tochacha is framed as a positive affirmative obligation. So it says, Lotisna So you shouldn't hate the other in your heart. Instead, you you must go out and offer this kind of rebuke. And then, and each of those segments can be looked at individually, but it seems clear that there's So, so, so trans, translate for us how, how you're understanding that third portion. That you, so you should not hate the other. You should instead, surely you should rebuke so that you don't hold sin on account of your resentment of the other. And the way that many of our rabbis read this is that inevitably, the way that the human heart works, if somebody has caused you pain and that pain sits unresolved in you, you will act out at some point and you will behave in a way that does not reflect the best of who you are in the world. Either you'll engage in some kind of act of violence um, against the person who harmed you even years before. Maybe you'll just speak negatively about the person. You'll engage in Lashon Hara. Or maybe you'll do something else. Like you'll have an anger that's built up in you that causes you to engage the world from a place of cruelty and resentment. And that's not who you are in the world. You then become imprisoned by the cruelty that someone else visited upon you. So don't hate the other in your heart. Do something with your hatred. You know, what I'm reminded of in the podcast is Isabel is not, at no point in the podcast does she come across as a kind of lovable character. You know, she's really, I mean, she makes it clear that she preferred her biological son who she thought Mm -hmm. was just perfect. There's nothing terribly redemptive uh, or or, or kind of uh, endearing until 
as we get towards the very, very end, uh, and then we hear a little bit more about her biography and how she was raised and about how her father had mental illness and how she had to basically raise herself. What I was reminded of when you brought this verse is something that Christina says at the end where at the end of the evening, she, she says, you know, I didn't get a fuzzy teddy bear, but I got her. And there's a way in which I think that that's exactly what you're talking about in terms of the third part of the verse, right? That she's no longer carrying around a kind of devilish version of of her adopted mother, right? She's now, there's been a kind of, the edges have softened a little bit. She knows it's not that she suddenly now thinks and feels warm fuzzies about her. It's just that she says, and she even says it, that's how she shows love, right? In other words, and Mm -hmm. she now sees, she's able to see something, I think exactly what you're saying, because she went through the process of of rebuke and and trying not to hold that hatred inside, she's able to see something in in her adopted mother and open up to to kind of have an emotional opening that wasn't present before. I want to say two things about that. One, even before we get to that piece, which is something I'd I'd really like to focus on, what she does open up in Isabel or what Isabel's um, what what Isabel's words open up in her, but the lotisa alavchet. In some ways, there's this incredible, this incredibly profound recognition that trauma begets trauma. That when Christina walks through life feeling like a wounded child because she was a wounded child, right. she will do something with that pain at some point. And I don't want to be overly simplistic, but I do. We often see that that people who who harm others were harmed themselves and right. that trauma was unresolved and so it seems like what the torah is trying to do in this verse is to say you don't have to be defined by the trauma that was visited upon you right. and then right. Find yourself in this endless cycle of creating new trauma for others who will then visit new trauma on others. But instead, there's a way out. There's a there's a mechanism that is built into the system, this mechanism of tochecha, and it free it breaks the cycle of violence and cruelty. Your mother did this to you does not mean that you need to do this to your child. Don't take that sin upon yourself. Not everybody does. But some do. Some people take our own wounds and we act out and and cause pain to others. And so you don't have to, it's saying. Instead, bring it back to the source. Engage it. See if the healing is possible. And instead of engaging in the inertia of or or the the kind of mindless movement of pain visiting pain upon pain. So I think that's the first critical the first yeah. critical piece is that she's freeing herself here right. from being the kind of parent that her mother was to her because she's willing to engage the pain point and actually confront it in whatever way she's able so that she doesn't just have to repeat the script. Yeah, I would actually, I'm, I'm reminded when you say that, I'm reminded of you know the kind of uh, endlessly repeated verse that because we were slaves in the land of Egypt, uh, we are commanded to treat the foreigner or the slave kindly. You shall love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And And I think that there's something parallel going on, which is that the Torah is trying to say that the most natural thing is exactly that process of repetition 
and of passing along, I was abused and so I become abusive. That cycle is so hard to break. And I think that what the Torah is saying is that it is possible to break that cycle, but it requires tremendous mindfulness and tremendous effort and tremendous moral courage. The moment when we find out that Isabel herself grew up in this terrible, uh, basically abusive, impossible home situation with a parent, uh, with a father who was alone, a single parent and and had mental illness, which was kind of exactly parallel to the way that mm-hmm. Christina grew up. And so you kind of see, oh my God, this is just this is just generation after generation. And so I think that you are right that this moment where and, and that becomes a and Christina becomes aware of that when she goes and does this mitzvah tochecha, this this commandment of rebuke, or when she wants to, when she insists upon uh, upon uh, uh, working things out with her adoptive mother. That's when she uh, gains this awareness. What's powerful about this story is it's not only the idea that Christina is willing to go back and visit the pain point and engage in this process of tochecha, of rebuke, but she does it in a way that feels aligned with Rambam's vision of what tochecha should look like from the Mishnah Torah. So you're bringing us to Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. And and he writes, and, and, and in his laws of uh, opinions. Is that how Hilchodeot is translated? His positions, uh, character, not, character traits. I think, we'll we'll find out how it's called. Uh, <laughs> so so he spells out right how this is commandment of rebuke is supposed to supposed to play itself out. Right. The first thing that he says is that when a person causes harm to another person, the one who's been victimized is not allowed to stay silent the way that the wicked ones did. And then quotes mm. this verse from Second Samuel between Avshalom and Amnon after Amnon raped Tamar and Avshalom was outraged that this vicious assault had happened. And Avshalom asks Tamar to stay silent. And then he himself stays silent. And it takes a couple of years where he's holding inside the rage that his sister was violated in this way until he ultimately murders Amnon. So his staying silent in the face of this really grotesque act of violence doesn't serve anybody. It only leads to murder. Don't be like that. But instead, he says, Ela mitzvah alav lehodio. It's your obligation to to like bring it to the person's attention. Why did you do this to me? Why did you sin against me in this in this way, in this manner? And what I'm always so struck by Rambam here, by Maimonides, is that he's instructing us that not only can you not stay silent and must you say something, but the way that you say something, mm-hmm. it's in the form of a question. Lama asita li Why would you do this thing? This thing caused me pain. What made you do it? Now, what happens to us when we engage in a question? And I don't think it's accidental here, and I don't think it's rhetorical. Hmm. I think I think that we're learning from Rambam that there's a particular way to yeah. offer rebuke that has to create the space for a dialogue. When you ask a question, hmm. then you are expecting an answer. And that's exactly what Christina's modeling in this Beautiful. conversation. She's so reluctant. She doesn't want to do it, right? I mean, right. she's scared right. to even ask when she gets into the room. 
But ultimately, she's she's asking a question, and the power of that is suddenly we're in conversation. The wisdom that Rambam brings is like you can't that you have to allow the other person to become a human being, as painful as that might be for us, because it's easier to hate the enemy when the enemy is flat. But when the enemy becomes three-dimensional, a person who suffered trauma as a child herself, a person who was deeply flawed and wounded, but was ultimately trying to give love the best way that she knew how, it's much harder to, to, it's much harder to write her off. And instead, we see how complicated people are. The idea that you point out, that Maimonides points out that Avshalom himself becomes bad or evil um, it, by, by not rebuking Amnon. So there's something powerful there because I think often we think that we're taking the high ground by staying silent right? Lots of times we think, well, okay, you know, like I'm strong, I can deal with this, I'll just let it pass. Uh, And I think that part of what the Rambam is saying is that, no, you've got it wrong. I mean, as you said, I mean, it comes out when you hold that in, it comes out in, in, in violence or some other inimical way, or it might be, right, as the verse from Leviticus says, hatred of that other person. And so there is something, um, even though, you know, going back to the, the moment when Christina has to have this conversation with Isabel, there is there's a way in which she feels small for needing to have that conversation. But um, I think that, that bringing the Rambam kind of offers a very, very different uh, vision of what that is. It's a moment of greatness to say, no, I need to have this conversation with you. It's a moment of accounting and saying this relationship matters and this moment very much mattered to me. And so be- precisely because it was an important moment, I'm not going to just let it pass and I'm not going to be quiet about it. The second thing, which I think is, is when the Rambam says when, we, you know, that you have to phrase it as a question, I think that really what you're saying um, is that you've invited the person to open their mouth. And that means that you're going to have to listen to what they have to say. Uh, And you have to be open to the possibility that they're going to say something that's going to let you down, or they're going to be open, or or they're going to say something that's going to convince you. Maybe you have to be open to that possibility too. And so uh, it, it, it kind of fosters a certain... Um, humility in terms of your own way of processing the experience, because in the same way that the experience, the interaction, right, between Christina and Isabel, when, when she when she said, you know, you have to leave the basketball team. Uh, and, and in the same way that that was an interaction between the two of them, there's now a new interaction between the two of them. And they're going to each have to give, uh, they're going to each have to give an accounting or their own view of, of what each of those interactions was about. And I promise that they're going to have different, in, different experiences of it, you know, and you have to be open to that. That's right. That's right. And so, so I think there are ultimately two functions to the question. On Mm -hmm. one hand, it may actually work, right? It may be that when you give tochecha and you ask the question that somebody's heart turns and that they recognize that they made a mistake and they're able to make tshuva. And if that doesn't happen, at least it may also make them become human to you in some way. This is where I want to go a little bit deeper for the final part of our conversation. Like the, the podcast ends 
you know, with love and, and Christina's new mayor, you know, and she, and she's on the basketball court again and, you know, she and her husband love each other. So, so it, it ends well, uh, but there is a way in which there's something deeply unresolved, right? In other words, she, she got, she, she did get a sense that this is the way her adopted mother showed love, but there's not a sense of, okay, I'm sorry or right. So, so this is what I want to ask you about, which is, seems to me that when, when I enter into the process of rebuke as, as really as a part of my process of tshuva, right? In other words, I'm trying to go through a process of accounting and there was this moment that I think needs fixing and what needs fixing is that the other person wronged me and I'm going to go to this person and I'm going to try to work it out. And I go to this person and I tell them, uh, or I ask them, right? I, I, I first read up on the Rambam and the Rambam says I'm supposed to ask. So I phrase it as a question and I say, why did you do this? And Isabel gives an answer which, which leaves me feeling hollow, which leaves me feeling like, well, she was doing her best, but she saw me as an accessory to her grandchildren, right? In other words, she adopted me, not because she loved me or felt sorry for me. And so I'm left with a sense of, um, if not emptiness, uh, gnawing emptiness, a sense of uh, this was not quite resolved for me. So then, so then, what do I, what do I do with that? What am, how do, how, how do I go forward, or how do we go forward in our relationship, or how, how does this process help one or both sides to move forward? I'm going to tell you a, a, one example, one story that I'm thinking of that just happened. There's a. Mm-hmm. Um, a dear beloved friend and member of our community who's a black Jew. Mm-hmm. And she did a, engage in a storytelling um, last year where she told the story about a little girl in her elementary school growing up who said to her, why would your mother marry a black man? Hmm. And so she was a little girl. And she, so her mother was white Ashkenazi Jew. Her father was black. Was black. And she it sat in her for 30 years. It shaped her her, her way of understanding the world, her sense of not feeling welcome in white spaces or black spaces or mm-hmm. Jewish spaces, et cetera. So she told the story last year and then she decided to reach out to that girl. She found her mm. on Facebook wow. and she did tochicha in the way that Rambam suggests. And she said, I have a memory. It's a formative memory. Why did you say this to me? And the girl who's now a woman, a mother, you know, she had no memory of ever having said it because for her, it wasn't a significant right. moment. It was, it was just it a wasn't, moment. It was a small moment like the ones you talked about before. Right. And she does what Isabel doesn't do. She said, I'm horrified that I said that to you. I'm so sorry. I've built my life in a way that would be the, that would, that would be the antithesis of what that moment was. Please forgive me. And I'll continue to work to make a world in which children don't speak like that to other children. Okay. Hmm. So what happens now? My friend feels after all these years, like, okay, okay. This woman, this girl who became a demon over the course of many years was just a kid. And what she said was really hurtful, but now I'm okay. And she's okay. And people grow and change. So sometimes it works. And even when it doesn't, the act of going back and revisiting the moment gives back the victim agency when her agency has been taken from her. Mm. So even though Isabel doesn't give Christina what she wants, when somebody causes you harm, they're stripping your agency. Christina's perception of her childhood was that she was set on a course by a cruel mother who never loved her. 
And she becomes who she is in the world because all of the steps followed because of choices that were made for her. When you go back and visit Isabel again, when we go back and visit the Isabels of our own childhood, we're saying, you can't set the course of my life. I have agency over some aspect of my life. I couldn't control what you did to me, but I can control the way I engage what you did to me. And that's why I think it's beautiful that, that Jonathan ends the podcast with this, this lovely note of she's building, this is the next chapter of her life now. She's free of this burden that, could, that, that was placed on her for many years. I want to bring into this conversation what Brian Stevenson says all the time and has t- really taught us and ingrained in us. Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative. He says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And what, what happens is Christina allows Isabel to be more than the worst thing Isabel ever did. And, and in a way, get that act of grace, that act of love that she shows toward the person who harmed her by engaging her with tochacha and asking it as a question, that act of grace rehumanizes Christina. It makes right. her free. Yeah, that's that's a that's a beautiful beautiful reading. I'm I'm it it almost convinces me. <laughs> I mean, when I heard the end, it was a little bit too um, too much of a of a positive ending for me. Uh, I felt like it was it was the the things were tied too neatly. But what I like and I'm very much appreciate in what you're saying is in terms of Christina becoming or taking agency into her own hands, I think that there is a way in which essentially what you're saying is that when we revisit that story and we engage in rebuke uh, and we let that person speak, even if that person's words don't meet us and say quite what we were hoping, we're now able to tell a different story. Uh, and, and the different story, what I would say here is, I, I mentioned it before, right, that, that Christina sees in Isabel, she said, you know, right, I didn't get a fuzzy teddy bear, but I got her and that's how she shows her love. And what that means is that that awareness that Christina has now come to, she can kind of now plug back in to the, the memories that she has. And that means that now when she thinks about uh, Isabel making her quit her basketball team, she's going to no longer be thinking, you know, the evil adopted mother. She's going to be thinking, okay, well, she's not a teddy bear, but that's how she was showing her love. And when she thinks about um, whatever other hurtful things that Isabel did uh, to her, she's going to now process them not as um, she did this out of malice or she did this out of failure as a mother or a lack of love or a lack of warmth. She did this because that's how she showed her love and that's what she was mm-hmm. capable of. And that means for Christina that she's going to process those events differently. It doesn't mean that what Isabel did was okay. It just expands Christina's understanding of who Isabel was and I think that's going to be more helpful for her as a mother one day, because then she'll like she will say, "I am a mother who was traumatized as a child by a cruel yes. parent, yeah. and I now know that that trauma can play out on the next generation." So I right. have to do a lot of work in order to counter the in order to counter that trend. The work that Isabel, frankly, didn't do even right. at the end of her life, she couldn't do it. She said, "Regretting something's a waste of time." That's Move right. On something else with your passion, even still, she couldn't acknowledge it. 
but Christina can. And so it doesn't make Isabel a good mother. It just shows Isabel three-dimensionally. And I think that in some ways, the wisdom of our tradition and all of the literature around Chuva is we are three-dimensional beings, all of us capable of, of causing incredible pain and all of us worthy of love. That's really, really beautiful. And I, I think that you're that you're saying something very, very true and very, very powerful that the ability to go through this process as as you as Maimonides uh, on the on the coattails of Leviticus points us to, and as we see that basically Christina does with her adoptive mother, it, it opens up an awareness and a sensitivity and a vision that that didn't previously exists and i think that you are right that 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 in the same way right that the, that the that the verses uh one after another in leviticus command us to be sensitive to the stranger because we were strangers and to break that cycle so i think there is a kind of promise that's held out here that even when something is unresolved seeing things in their full complexity allows you an awareness which then will will enable you to be the very very best person that you could be and a much better person than you would be without having engaged in that process rabbi sharon browse thank you it was just a real real pleasure to talk to you and to have you here on padrash thanks for being thank with you us. leon thank you so much before we continue on to jonathan goldstein guest of our hypertech segment we'll break briefly in order to meet hilah das CEO of Enosh, the Israeli Mental Health Association, and a Kolot alumna. We chatted so that I could learn about her and how learning at Kolot has impacted her. I'm a daughter, I'm a mother, and I'm a grandmother. I'm a ninth generation in Israel. Wow. Documented, so maybe wow. even more. I'm a biologist. Mm-hmm. And through the last 13 years, I've been the CEO of Enosh. Enosh mm-hmm. is the Israeli Mental Health Association. And it was life transforming for me because I never knew that mental health is the main reason for people to be on disability payment. You know, as a CEO, There is a lot that you can do, a lot that you can influence. And at the same time, there is a lot of loneliness. And with this group, it was a different way to deal with this loneliness. It was like reading a book together, but each and every one of us read the book in a different way. I think this is, um, for me, a nice way to reframe why it was vital. It was like reading together, not only the text, but something that is much broader than the text. Beautiful. Learning at Kolot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us, beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, visit www.kolot.info. Any of our listeners will presumably know heavyweight and, and they should be embarrassed if they don't yet. I guess I could introduce you, uh, Jonathan Goldstein, as the, as the creator and host of Heavyweight. Before that, I know had a long 
career in public radio even before that. What I want to ask you about, Jonathan, is um, can, can you share with me the backstory of Heavyweight? Like, how did you come up with the idea? The uh, common denominator among all of my stories was a sort of an intersection of certain notions, I guess, having to do with uh, regret and having to do with the weight of regret and the weight mm. of the past and the way that it impacts the present. Before, basically, I had an idea for what the series would be. I knew that there were certain stories that were interesting to me. And among them was uh, a story about my father. That was really the blueprint, I think, in many ways, because here was um, a story that I had grown up with about my father's relationship with his brother, Sheldon. My father, Buzz, and uh, his brother hadn't spoken in easily 40 years. And I'd always hear different versions of why this was. And it seemed to be something that my father carried with him, even though his brother wasn't in in his life, it kind of cast a shadow because, you know, at the time his brother was in his mid eighties, my father mm-hmm. was in his early eighties. The idea was like, now's the time maybe to try and resolve this because it seemed like maybe they had forgotten even why they weren't talking anymore. Although as I, as I remember back to that episode, yeah. I mean, at a certain level, they're, they're far too, they're far, they were both far from having forgotten. They both had like kind of nested stories of one event after another that it happened as to, and how it had happened and why they weren't talking to each other. That's true. Yeah. And in, in, in some ways it felt as though they didn't have a chance really. The deck was stacked against them because of their parents' relationship and the way that they were positioned within the family. The idea was for them to just be able to have a conversation as brothers as um, as these two older guys in their eighties, mm-hmm. who in, in a lot of ways were just strangers now. So that first season of the show was just sort of that kind of thing, dealing with um, friends and family, and and you know stories that had been kind of sitting in the back of my head for decades, stories that I'd been told regrets shared with me by friends and family. And mm-hmm. then when I ran out of those in the second season, people started coming to me with stories that they were looking for resolution, people that they wanted to reconnect with, actions not taken, uh, things that they regretted, things that they wanted to make right. Mm -hmm. And that was when it kind of got bigger. In the first season, um, I was dealing with people that I already really had a lot of uh, affection for. And in the second season, I was dealing largely initially with strangers. But, you know, as we worked together, I began to develop a lot of compassion and and feeling for them. You stated explicitly regarding your father and your uncle that you were kind of, I think you, you even maybe just a few minutes ago used the word resolution, but how much do you want either? How much did you with your, with your father and your brother, or maybe in every episode, how much do you want there to actually be resolution as opposed to just, let's say confronting that moment and, and, and exhausting its potential? I mean, I think there's, I think resolution is on a spectrum. And I think um, for some of them, there's more of a kind of storybook uh, where someone wants something concrete and then mm-hmm. they get it back. But I think like in the best stories with the, with the best episodes, there's something where the thing that they thought that they were looking for is just kind of um, a little bit of like a canard or, or mm-hmm. is, is kind of like a phantom. And the thing that they really want is something that's hiding behind 
that object. Mm. We did one episode where this guy many, many years earlier had had uh, hawked at a pawn shop, a family heirloom, this mm-hmm. gun that his grandfather had brought back from World War II when he bought it. He used yeah. it, pulled it to buy drugs. And he wanted to get that gun back. And we spent an, an entire episode trying to get that trying to get the gun back. But in the end, it was really, I think he was looking for something from his father. And mm-hmm. then the gun became a conduit to have that, to having that conversation with his father, which was the more important thing. But really in the end, I think it's, it's about uh, opening up something within the subjects in their mind. But even if to the extent that that process is largely internal um, and maybe not entirely dependent upon some, you know, external, um, resolution or another person or, you know, getting the gun back, um, either literally or figuratively. How do you feel like, I'm sure that there have been episodes where you felt that there wasn't the kind of resolution that either, you know, your guest or you, um, were hoping there would be. And so I'm kind of curious as to how, when you've gone through this journey, you know, I mean, obviously your, your version of the journey is maybe less emotionally intense than the person that you're accompanying, but, uh, but it's still, you're putting in uh, a tremendous amount of time and energy uh, into the process. And I'm curious what it is for you in terms of when, when that person, when you don't, when that person doesn't come to the kind of either clarity or resolution that they were hoping for that you thought might've been possible. In each story's ending, there's always something that will always remain unresolved. Even at the end of the episode with my father and his brother, I mean, it wasn't like they had a tearful embrace. They just shook hands. There was one episode we did where this woman had a father who completely absconded, disappeared to the Philippines, and she never found out why. And there was something amiss with him. And that story sat on a shelf for a couple of years because I felt like he doesn't really offer anything satisfying in terms of resolution. But the thing that she does get, and and, and really, I mean, this is the way that things often end in real life. She played something out that oftentimes takes, could take years in therapy. But what she figured out was that uh, she's never going to get the things from her dad that she wanted when she was a kid. And she prepared to make her peace with that. It's not the most dramatic kind of like, I got a gun kind of ending. Right. But it's, there's something that feels real about it. And the trick is to try to make that relatable to people, make it both relatable and satisfying is, is kind of, I think, the trick. Let, let me go into that just a little bit deeper, that desire to make it relatable and satisfying. So the relatable part, it seems as a, as a listener to me, you do it masterfully, but that's easier. Um, the, the question of satisfying, so that, that's where I kind of want to go because um, this particular episode of Padrash, what we're looking at, is really, in a certain sense, that question of, you know, what do we do when the process that we've gone through doesn't provide us the kind of ending that we were hoping for? And so I'm curious, like, from your perspective, when you're, when you're accompanying someone or when you're actually, like, creating the show where there's an actual end to the show in the way that there's not an end to someone's process or life, you know, what are you looking for in terms of, you know, quote unquote, satisfaction or, or creating an ending? So like you say, I mean, there's, there isn't that kind of resolution. What started off as just like seeking 
the CDs became seeking something internal and it took a while to kind of, uh, to see that, to uncover this, this thing that was deeper, but invisible. Is that where you think the resolution is to the extent that it's to be had? Is it in the understanding that, oh, it, it wasn't the CDs that I was looking for. It was something else. The thing about a podcast or any kind of story is it has parameters it ends where you decide to end it. Life goes on and there continues to be struggles. People wonder about what happened between my father and his brother Sheldon. Of course, they're not going to be, you know, they're not talking on the telephone every day, but at least they had that weekend together. Sometimes the ending doesn't happen chronologically at the end of a conversation either. It's something where you, you know, through the miracle of editing, you could sort of pluck something out where you're like, that's really our resting point. That is our, that is mm. the place that we have to drive towards. Um, mm. And, and it's something that happens before that conversation ends. And that's the difference between, I guess, art and life. Life is just kind of unfolding and is kind of chaotic. And sometimes the ending isn't at the end. And so I'm curious whether that understanding that you have and you just expressed very beautifully about the fact that sometimes the ending isn't actually at the end, has that awareness served you in life? In other words, have, have there been moments in your life when you've said, huh, you know, in this relationship or in this context, if I were to just edit right now, that would be a perfect ending. And then it's not done, but like something has happened of moments. I don't know if I do it consciously. I think maybe in looking back, I think in some ways, maybe memory edits things in that way. I've spent my life also, you know, before doing this podcast, writing fiction and doing something that is nonfiction. One of the joys of it is pushing past where I would normally in a work of fiction rest upon, like w what I would kind of name as the ending which sometimes is cleaner, like this moment that I would think is kind of resonant and sort of works as an ending. I'll sometimes allow just the, 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 I guess, I don't know how to put it, but like the chaos of reality to kind of dictate that process a little bit more. One final question. Can you share with us a moment in one of the episodes in which you were inspired by someone else's journey or by the, or by the way in which someone else um, dealt with uh, or carried that or confronted that heavyweight from their past? Oh, every, every single episode, I feel like we meet extraordinary people that I'm just so admiring of and I feel like I have so much to learn from. It's about one of the pleasures of the medium of audio, of radio, where it can be, you can gain a kind of... Um, entrance into people's lives in a way that isn't quite as uh, obtrusive as, as a uh, visual media. So yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm grateful for that too. Hmm. Honestly, I want to just thank you. Um, I mean, first of all, for the time now, but, but, yeah, but no, mostly, but mostly just because, uh, I think that you really do manage. I mean, I, I feel like you really do. Yeah. I, I just feel like you capture, uh, you manage to capture these moments that are so, profound and human and brave and vulnerable. And you kind of bring us into the inner folds of these people's journeys in a way that is not at all intrusive in a kind of odd way. In other words, there's no, it doesn't have the crass kind of reality 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's as far as possible as it could be from that. Thank you, first of all. And, and thank you for allowing me an opportunity to step back and reflect on what I do. I don't feel like I'm able to articulate it very well, which is why I like to sit with my words and write scripts and everything. But re- it is really nice to actually contemplate this stuff. Resolution, something we long for. The Hebrew word that comes to mind is geulah, redemption. But interestingly, there's not quite a word in Hebrew for resolution. There's pitaron, but that's really a solution. The closest, perhaps, is yeshuv, what we might call a settling. But dust settles, it doesn't resolve. And so maybe the Hebrew is telling us something important, namely that tshuva isn't quite about resolution. It's about settling, letting the dust clear. Much like Jonathan Goldstein said, his guests often show us that there's something behind the object that we were looking for, the resolution we're pursuing. And that something is the deep, nourishing horizon that Chuva offers. What is that elusive something that Christina's looking for? Following Maimonides' wisdom, she approaches Isabel with an ask. She wants to understand why she made her quit basketball. She asks with an edge, a deep hurt, and an implied sense of accusation that doing so is cruel and beyond that ineffective. But she has the courage to have the conversation and the wisdom to frame it as a question. As Rabbi Sharon Browse pointed out, that willingness to come armed only with a question is a world-changing possibility. It allows Isabel to show us her underbelly, to cry, to provide Christina a revelatory moment in which they discover that she, just like Christina, was raised by a single parent whose mental illness was a source of instability, constant threat, and raw pain. Christina's question allows for Isabel's vulnerability. And we discover much along the lines of what Rabbi Sharon Brow said, that all too often an abused child becomes an abusive parent. That might be the way to understand Exodus 34-7, which averts the divine is poked avon avot albanim, visiting the iniquity of parents on their children. That's the path of nature. But the rabbis who fashioned the model of tshuva offer an unnatural path, one in which the children break the cycle. Isabel, prickly, non-teddy bear Isabel, is softer than her father was. And Christina, who has the wisdom and sensitivity to have a conversation with Isabel and start it with the question, brings the world one step further away from the inevitability of automatically transferring abuse and pain from one generation to the next. As my Chavruta Joel Levy said in our study session, that's a life journey, mate, but it's a journey worth embarking upon. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Sharon Brous and heavyweight host Jonathan Goldstein, to our producer Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman for his masterful sound editing, to my chevruta Rabbi Joel Levy, and to Michael Goel Saimel for the original music. You can find links to the original episode of Heavyweight and to Joel's and my extended chevruta, along with the texts that we referenced on our website, www.podrash.org. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, 
And please give us a five-star rating. It really helps. We'll be back next week with Episode 2, The View from Above. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.